You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it can be heard at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com as well. Also, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and Theory of Art. This is the uh, lecture 8.4. It's the fourth of eight lectures and the eighth section in the book. There's essays and lectures in this book. Translated by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Venno. It's entitled The Sources of Artistic Imagination and Supra-Sensory Knowledge, Part 1 given in Munich on May 5th, 1918. Since ancient times, human beings have felt the connection between artistic imagination and suprasensory knowledge, that which we can call visionary consciousness, or if the term is not misunderstood as is easily possible, clairvoyance. For the spiritual researcher of today, who attempts to penetrate into the spiritual world from today's perspective, this relationship between artistic creation and suprasensory knowledge is much more meaningful than the more frequently emphasized relationship between visionary life, which is fundamentally based on pathological conditions, and clairvoyance that truly lives only in the soul without the help of the body. Now, we know that poets and artists in general often feel a very close relationship between their whole way of working, between their experience on the one hand and clairvoyance on the other. Artists, especially those who seek a path into suprasensory realms in their work, writers of fairy tales or others who work artistically in an attempt to embody the suprasensory, speak, justifiably and out of a living reality, about how they see the figures they create standing before them how the figures move and act before them, making a real objective impression on them when they concern themselves with these figures. As long as this confrontation with what one recasts into an artistic form does not rob the soul of its clarity, as long as it does not pass over into compulsive visions over which the human will and the mind's clarity have no control, so long can one still speak of a kind of borderline event between artistic intuition and clairvoyance. In the realm of spiritual scientific research, there is a very definite border, and this is the important thing, between clairvoyance and artistic creativity, together with its source, artistic imagination. Whoever cannot see this border clearly, or cannot make it fruitful for his own life, will easily end up where many who came to me as artists ended up, who had a certain fear of being harmed by their own work, because something of the visionary penetrated their consciousness. There are people who have a genuinely artistic nature, but find it necessary for their artistic work to allow impulses to arise out of their subconscious or unconscious soul who then shrink back as if faced with fire, 
afraid that something of a suprasensory reality that stands before the lucid consciousness might shine into their unconscious creative work. There is a great difference, subjectively, in their relationship to the experience of artistic enjoyment, reception and understanding, and the experience of the suprasensory world through suprasensory sight. Artistic creativity, reception and viewing allow the soul within which they develop to direct the personality to the outer world with the help of outer perception and with the help of visualization, which then becomes memory. We need only recall the characteristics of all artistic creativity and enjoyment to be able to say, certainly in artistic receptivity and also in artistic work, there is perception and sensory understanding of the outer world. It is not present in as crude a form as it otherwise is in sensory manifestations. It is a spiritual understanding and creativity, which freely interacts with perception and visualization and with what lives in the artist as recollection and the content of his memory. But we would be unable to debate about the justification of naturalism and individualism if we did not know about this dependence on perception. In the same way, we can convince ourselves that hidden memories elements that lie unconscious in the soul and constitute human memory, contribute to artistic work and enjoyment. All of this disappears in the true suprasensory knowledge of modern spiritual research. For there we are concerned with a complete withdrawal of the soul from sensory perception, as well as from the usual visualization and whatever is connected as memory with this visualization. Yes, the big difficulty lies in convincing contemporaries that there is something like an inner experience that excludes perception and ordinary conceptions and memories. Especially the naturalist will not admit that this could be the case. He will always claim, you say that nothing flows into your clairvoyance. I see that you are mistaken. You do not know how hidden content lies dormant in your memory and then cunningly rises up. This happens because those who raise such objections do not concern themselves with the methods by which clairvoyance is achieved and which show that the impression of the spiritual world can be directly present without being influenced by reminiscences or hidden memories. Schooling depends precisely on this that we find a way to free the soul of outer impressions and ideas based on memories. Thereby a solid border has been made between artistic creativity and the production of suprasensory knowledge. For the soul, the human eye, capital, in which suprasensory knowledge lives, really does not make use of the bodily organization, which does, however, play a role in artistic creativity. But because this is the case, the question that arises all the more is what is the relationship between that which arises from subconscious soul depths as impulses that weave into artistic creativity and enjoyment, and that which comes out of the purely spiritual world through direct, immediate impressions born of suprasensory knowledge. 
To answer this question, I would like to consider several experiences of art that the seer himself has. These experiences with art are generally characteristic right from the beginning. It becomes apparent that if we have learned to stand in the suprasensory life, to collect suprasensory knowledge, then we actually become capable of excluding, for certain periods of time, all sensory impressions and pictures remaining in the memory that connect to these impressions. Now, if someone who is standing within this suprasensory sight then also tries to clearly grasp, in relation to a work of art, everything that he is used to grasping in relation to an outer sensory phenomenon, an entirely different experience arises. In the presence of a sensory phenomenon, the seer is always able to exclude sensory perceptions and inner pictures stemming from memory. But this is not the case in the presence of works of art. The seer always retains an important inner content of the artwork that he neither can nor intends to exclude, in spite, of course, of excluding all sensory and memory impressions. The work of an art offers something that proves to be related to his clairvoyance. Then the question arises, what is the basis for this relationship? We realize this if we attempt to grasp what is active in the human being when he sees purely spiritually in suprasensory knowledge. Then we recognize the inadequacy of the ideas we human beings have about ourselves and our relationship to the outer world when we remain in our ordinary consciousness. We believe that our ideas, feelings and will are strictly separated from one another. Psychology does indeed point out the interrelatedness of these activities, but not skillfully enough. Someone who experiences the complexities of soul life as they are present in vision knows that such a differentiation between thinking, feeling and willing does not actually exist. Instead, in ordinary consciousness and life, there is, in thinking, always a residue of feeling and willing, in feeling a residue of thinking and willing, and in every willing a residue of thinking and even of perception. Willing retains a hidden unconscious residue of perception. This needs to be kept in mind if we want to understand clairvoyance. For from what has previously been said, you can see that thinking and perception are silenced in spiritual sight, but that feeling and willing are not silenced. Yet it would not be clairvoyance if the person developed feeling and willing as happens in ordinary consciousness. On the contrary, when the person passes over into a state of spiritual sight, all willing, as it exists in ordinary life, must be silenced. The person enters a state of complete calm. What is meant here by clairvoyance is not to transport oneself restlessly into the spirit world, as, for example, in the case of dervishes. Instead, what is meant is the complete silencing of everything that expresses itself in ordinary life as willing, or as the force of emotional feelings. In everything the human being lets flow into action out of his willing, there still lives something of an emotional feeling. This feeling also in reference to the revelation of willing must be silenced. 
but it is not the emotional feeling as such that is silenced, and, above all, not the impulse of the willing. Perception and thinking are silenced, but the impulse of the emotional feeling and willing are justified. Only they pass over into a condition of soul stillness and therefore develop the character of their perceiving and thinking in a different way than usual. If we were to remain at the mere feeling or at a falsely mystical inner expression of willing, we would not be able to enter the spiritual world. But in the condition of soul stillness, what is otherwise emotional feeling and impulse of will expresses itself spiritually. Feeling and willing express themselves in such a way that they appear before the soul as objective, powerful, thought-like spiritual beings while the remaining perceptions and ideas that otherwise go unnoticed in feeling and willing are revealed and become capable of entering the spiritual world. Once we have grasped how, as seers, we live in feeling and willing, in the way that human beings usually live in thinking and perception, not in unclear thinking and feeling, not in nebulous mysticism, but as lucidly as otherwise in ideas and perceptions, then we can understand art fruitfully, admittedly in such a way that we only then come to realize the worthlessness of such summaries as are expressed through the word art. Art comprises very different realms, architecture, sculpture, music, poetry, painting, and more. And we could say if we wanted to establish the relationship among the various arts, using the seer's experience, the concrete differences among the arts would appear much more meaningfully than the way they do when philosophy combines them under the name art. By achieving the possibility of experiencing the thought content of the world and the spiritual content of the world with help of thinking that has been transformed into emotional feeling and willing, we achieve a remarkable relationship to architecture. I have said that ordinary thinking and perception are not present in clairvoyance, but a completely different thinking arises, one which flows out of feeling and willing. It is a conceptualization that is actually a thinking in forms, which through thinking could directly represent forms of the distribution of forces in space, relationships of dimensions in space. This thinking feels itself to be related to what comes to expression in architecture and sculpture when these represent truly artistic structures. We feel our thinking and perception to be particularly at home in architecture and sculpture because the abstract, shadowy thinking so beloved today ends, is silenced, and a concrete thinking begins. It cannot but transform its content into spatial forms, moving spatial forms, stretching, overarching, bending forms, in which the will that flows into the world comes to expression. The seer is obliged not to grasp what he wants to know in the spiritual world with a kind of thinking used by the rest of science that would not provide spiritual knowledge. It is mere illusion to think we have spiritual knowledge. For with ordinary thinking we cannot penetrate into the spiritual world. 
Whoever wants to penetrate the spiritual world must, as a thinker, have what creates its own sculptural or architectural, but also living, forms. Thus, we realize that the artist enters into an experience of unconscious forms. These forms strive upward, fill his soul, turn themselves into ordinary ideas that allow themselves partly to be worked out. They are transformed into what is then artistic form. The architect and sculptor are transitional elements for what the seer experiences as ideas and perceptions in the spiritual world. What the seer grasps in his life of thought and perception slips into the organization of the architect. Deep down in the soul life, it rises up in waves and becomes conscious. This is how the architect and sculptor create their forms. The difference is just this. The essential form-giving aspects underlying architectural and sculptural creations come up out of subconscious impulses, whereas the seer discovers these impulses as that which he needs in order to grasp the great relationships in the spiritual world. Just as one ordinarily has ideas and perceptions, so the seer has to develop skills that point to what imbues and enlivens the world structure. And what he as seer sees through and lives into, this lives in an unconscious way in the architect and sculptor, penetrating their artistic creativity. Someone familiar with supra-sensory experiences who seeks a relationship to the musical and poetic arts will have a different type of experience. In this case, the seer will, bit by bit, feel his inner life completely differently from his ordinary consciousness, which conceives and perceives the outer world. He feels himself to be within his feeling and will. Whoever can practice self-observation knows that it is only in feeling and willing that we are in ourself, but it is precisely this feeling and willing that the seer lifts out of himself, and because this feeling and willing provide him with ideas and perceptions, he takes leave of himself in his feeling and willing. But something else appears in their stead. He finds himself again. By having the distinct consciousness that he has stepped out of his body and does not perceive anything with the help of his body, he finds himself again in the outer world and intuitively goes over into what is, he has perceived in the moving forms and has shaped into ideas. He carries his own self into the outer world. By doing so he learns, so to speak, to say to himself, by passing through experiences inwardly, it becomes clear that I have stepped out of my body, which was always the mediator of my relationship to the outer world, but I have found myself again by submersing myself in the spiritual world. When this becomes inner experience, the seer finds that he must receive his willing and feeling from the spiritual world again in order to receive himself again out of the suprasensory world. He must do this while a feeling and willing, but a transformed feeling and willing that do not resort to the body for help, now become his. A feeling that is inwardly related to the experience of music, that is, indeed, so related to the experience of music 
that we could say it is even more musical than the comprehension of music itself. This feeling is akin to flowing out into tones with our soul nature, into a symphony or some other piece of music, as if we were becoming melody, becoming vibration. With poetry, we are within willing. This is what poetry demands, that by rediscovering our willing, we learn to perceive true poetry. Feeling is musical. Willing is in true poetry. Painting presents a very unique and special case for the seer. In this case, neither the one nor the other sets in. Instead, something different, more characteristic, arises. In the presence of genuine painting, the seer has the feeling, and he might himself be a painter, for we will hear that artistic creativity and suprasensory knowledge can exist side by side, that the painter approaches him from an indeterminate part of the world bringing him a world of line and color, and the seer approaches from the opposite direction toward the painter and must take what the painter brings, whatever of the outer world he has put into his art, and place it as imagination into what he, the seer, experiences in the spiritual world. But the colors the seer experiences are not the same as those of the painter, and yet they are the same. They do not conflict. To understand this, you might consider the sensory-ethical part of Goethe's color theory about the moral effect of colors. It contains the most basic aspect. There, the feeling effects of individual colors within the soul are described with an inner instinct. Clairvoyance reaches this feeling from out of the spiritual world, this feeling that we really experience every day in the higher world. We should not think that the seer, in describing colorful auras, is speaking as the artist speaks of colors. He experiences the feeling that we otherwise experience in the presence of yellow and red, but it is a spiritual experience and should not be confused with physical visions. The worst misunderstandings revolve around this point. For the seer, the experience of art can be designated as an encounter with something similar, approaching from the opposite direction. Agreement is possible because the same thing comes from the outside that has been created from the inside. Parenthesis, I always assume that we are dealing with artistic creativity, with which agreement is possible, in that it is preceded by art and not naturalism. Close parenthesis. To put it crudely, the seer must imagine must illustrate what happens. This happens by having him express in colors and forms what he experiences. There he encounters the painter. And it has to be said again that if he were to ask the painter what their relationship is, then the painter would have to answer, Something lives in me. By having gone through the world with ordinary eyes, transforming into art the colors and forms I saw, I experienced something that earlier on surged in the depths of my soul. It rose into consciousness and became art. The seer would then say to the painter, that which lives in the depths of your soul lives in the things. By passing through these things, you live with your soul within the spirit of the things. 
now it is necessary, in order to conserve strength for painting and to experience what you experienced while passing consciously among the things outside, so that you do not extinguish what approaches your senses. It is necessary to keep the impulses that create painting alive in the subconscious. It is a matter of having the unconscious impulses now surge up into consciousness. The seer says, I went about in the same world, but paid attention to what it is that lives in you. I observed what took place in your subconscious, brought what was subconscious in you to consciousness. It is precisely in this kind of understanding that something which is usually not properly observed will arise in considering the great meaningful problems of the human soul. When we have an inner experience of what has just been characterized, then something approaches that deeply moves us. It is the mystery of incarnadine, this wonderful human flesh color, which is actually a big problem for clairvoyance. It hints at the fact that the clairvoyance I am talking about is not entirely unknown and foreign in ordinary life. It just is not noticed. I would like to utter the paradoxical but true phrase, every human being is clairvoyant, but it is denied, even when, in a practical sense, it cannot be denied. If we were to deny it in a practical sense, all of life would be disturbed. Today there are peculiar people who think, how do I come to have a stranger standing before me? They want to remain entirely in the realm of naturalism, want to remain true naturalists, so they say. I have stored the oval face and other features in my memory, and because various experiences have shown me that in such features a human being lies hidden, I can conclude that behind the form of the nose there is a human eye, capital. We can find such arguments amongst the so-called rational people, in quotes. But that does not correspond to the experiences we have if we observe life from the perspective of our own participation in life. I do not conclude something about the eye, capital, because of the shape of the face. I am conscious of an eye because the perception of that which appears before me as a physical human being is based on something different from the perception of a crystal or a plant. It is not true that inanimate, natural bodies make the same impression as a human being does. It is different with an animal. The sensory human object standing before us raises itself, makes itself spiritually transparent, and by means of true clairvoyance we see, whenever a human being is present, his eye. That is the true fact. Such clairvoyance consists of nothing but the following. We take the way in which we stand in our own subjective nature in the presence of a human being and expand it throughout the world so as to see whether there is something else that we can see through in the same way as we see through the human being. We really cannot get a true impression of clairvoyance without taking into consideration the basis for the differentiated understanding of the other human being. For this understanding is based on the clairvoyant perception of the other soul. Incarnadine plays a special role in such clairvoyance. When the human being is seen outwardly 
this incarnadine appears finished. For one who sees spiritually, the incarnadine changes in the experience of being observed. It is an intermediary stage. It results when clairvoyance, which is spread across the other realms of the world, is directed at the human form so that the quiet incarnadine swings between the polarities and the middle. We perceive paleness and blushing. The latter is like a raying out of warmth. The middle is present in the perception of paleness and blushing. Connected with such an experience of the being and movement is the knowledge that we are diving into the outer being of the human being, not just his soul, but into his eye. We dive down into what he is in his body because of his soul, because of his incarnadine. This leads us into the relationship between artistic understanding and supersensory knowledge. For what becomes so malleable in the inner grasping of incarnadine lies unconscious in the artistic creativity of the incarnadine. The artist need only be subtly aware of this. Nevertheless, only by seeking this experience will the artist be able to place fine, living vibrations into the center of the incarnadine. So, we see how in painting, sources of artistic imagination collide with suprasensory knowledge. They collide in ordinary life, even if one does not notice it, in the realm of language. Nowadays, language is usually considered also scientifically in a very intellectual manner. But the life of language is present in us in a threefold way. Whoever approaches language clairvoyantly and has to express what he perceived in the spirit world first acquires a perception in relation to language, which one might well call insane. When people talk amongst themselves, even when they are involved in science, everything they say is a degradation of language below the level on which language ought to stand. Language as mere means of, for communication is a degradation. We perceive that language lives in its own being, where poetry flows through language, where what arises out of the human inner life flows through language. Then the spirit of language is itself at work. The poet actually first determines where the level of language is and experiences ordinary speech as neglecting the higher level of speech. We can feel why a sensitive poet like Morgenstern would remark that a lower limit of language is actually perceptible and that it is quite widespread, this limit, which we can call idle chatter. He finds that chatter has its origin in ignorance of the sense and value of the individual word, that the chatterer manages to take the word out of its firm contours, and to make it obscure. Morgenstern feels that this expresses a deep secret of life. He says, language takes revenge on the obscurer, on the obscured. Because he was able to bridge poetry and clairvoyance, this statement is just as comprehensible as when he finds the affinity between tone, picture, architecture, and so forth. This same affinity was, after all, the basis of all of Goethe's creativity.
For a time in his life he did not know whether he should become a poet or a sculptor. The clairvoyant, however, experiences the content of spiritual experience outside the realm of speech. It is difficult to make this clear because most people think in words, but the clairvoyant thinks wordlessly and must then pour what is a wordless experience into the fixed language. He must adjust to the formal conditions of language. He need not experience this as coercion, for he reaches behind where the mystery of language creation exists. He can make himself understood by stripping away the common intellectual aspect of language. That is why it is so important to grasp that how the clairvoyant speaks is more important than what he says. What he says is determined by the conception that everyone brings in from the outside. It is necessary, if he is not to be considered a fool, that what he says be clothed in feasible sentences and conceptual associations. For the highest realms of spirit, how the clairvoyant says something is important. We gain a proper understanding of this if we note the how, if we note how the clairvoyant is careful to say some things briefly, others more broadly, and still others not at all that he must formulate a sentence from one side and then another from the other side. The structural aspect is important to the higher parts of the spiritual world. That is why it is less important for comprehension to listen to the mere content, which is, of course, also important as revelation from the spiritual world, than it is to penetrate through the content to the manner in which the content is expressed and so to see whether the speaker is merely coupling sentences and theories or whether he speaks from experience. Speaking from the spiritual world becomes visible in the how of what is said, not so much in the content insofar as it is of a theoretical character, but rather in how it is expressed. It is possible, in the case of such communications out of the forms of language, for the artistic element of speech to work into what inspires the seer to raise himself up to the process of speech creation in such a way that he recreates something of what was present when speech arose out of the human organism. What, then, is the basis for what appears in clairvoyant consciousness, for what lives into the spiritual world through artistic creativity, for what lives in artistic imagination, unconsciously and subconsciously. Naturally, artistic creativity is conscious, but the impulses, the drive, must remain in the unconscious so that artistic creativity is free from bias. Only someone who knows that for certain reasons ordinary human consciousness is designed for something other than entering into the fullness of the world will be able to understand what this is about. Our ordinary consciousness tends, on one side, toward observing nature. But what it delivers is the result of our concepts, which do not penetrate into the realm of space where matter haunts, so says Dubois Raymond. And further, what lives in the soul cannot be fulfilled by reality. However deeply the mystical is experienced, it always hovers above reality. 
The human being does not come to the totality of the world either through seeing into nature or through seeing into the soul. An abyss is there which usually cannot be bridged. It is consciously bridged in clairvoyant consciousness, in artistic creativity. Then self-knowledge must become something different from what is usually designated as such. Mystical insight finds that it is accomplished enough when it says, Within me I have experienced God, my higher self. But true self-knowledge wants to perceive how what we otherwise experience only as the point of the I lives creatively in the organism. In that we have ideas and perceptions, we are not just conceiving and perceiving beings, but we also breathe in and out continually. While we stand in the world in waking consciousness, we always breathe in and out. But ordinary consciousness does not perceive what is happening in us. Something wonderful happens there, which can only be recognized through clairvoyant consciousness. When we do not look only at the nebulous I, but how this I lives, shaping concrete reality, then the following becomes apparent. In the out-breath, the cerebrospinal fluid goes into the spinal canal in a long sac which has all sorts of malleable, fragile places. It pushes down, pushes at the veins of the body. I am describing what happens there as an outer process. Ordinary consciousness cannot penetrate there, but the soul partakes of this subconsciously, this spreading out of what comes from the brain into the veins of the body, and it partakes when breathing in of the stemming of the venal blood in the veins of the back through the spinal canal, the penetration of the cerebrospinal fluid into the brain, and what is happening in the interplay between nerves and sense organs. Ordinary consciousness is vague here, unaware of any of this, but soul and spirit are involved. This process unfolds as though chaotically. What pushes back and forth there is what happens in every human being in music. Music lives inwardly here in this process. And what is creative in music is to lift up into outer conscious form what the musician learns to experience as music in his soul life. Tone lives in it, the subconscious living flow of music within which the human soul weaves. Our psychology is still very elementary. Things that throw light on the life of the artist still have to be researched in harmony with clairvoyance. Human experience is complicated. The impulse for artistic imagination is actually this subconscious knowledge of the soul, in that the musical life takes place between the spinal canal and the brain into which blood shoots, and the cerebrospinal fluid sounds upward against the brain so that the nerve is made to vibrate. If this is brought into connection with the possibility of higher perception, then therein lives more enjoyable inner music than in the objective impulse from which the human soul is born, when the human being, from out of spiritual life, enters through birth or conception into physical existence. The soul steps into existence 
by learning to play the instrument of the physical body. And what happens when this entire movement takes place, this vibration of the cerebrospinal fluid? What takes place there in the alternating relationship between nerves and senses? When the vibration of the nerve strikes the outer senses, mind you, not yet the sense perception, when the vibration of the nerve in the waking state simply strikes, then what lives unconsciously and gets drowned by the perception is poetry. Between the senses and the nervous system, there is a region in which the human being unconsciously writes poetry. The nerve vibration rolls into his senses. It runs its course unconsciously, which can be determined physiologically. This life runs its course in the senses and is the production of poetry. The human being lives in the inner creation of poetry, and poetic creativity is the raising up of this unconscious life. I have shown this through the process of breathing. When considering the out-breath, we must be aware that the cerebrospinal fluid pushes down in the body, into the forces that come from the body, to meet it, and into the forces through which the human being places himself into the outer world. We continually stand in the world in a particular equilibrium, whether with our legs spread apart, with an arm bent, or whether we crawl as children, or whether we transform the equilibrium of crawling into the equilibrium of being erect, we are in an inner condition of balance. What the inner forces bring toward the vibrations that are breathed out, this is the basis for what is fashioned in sculpture and architecture. The emotional feeling which lives in the human being when he moves but keeps the movement quiet is brought to expression in sculpture. This is an inner experience that is related to the forms of the body. We will recognize this only if we are used to fashioning perception and thought into quiet form conceptions. We get to know that the forces emanating from the body are not chaotic, but are, rather, forms that show how the human being is integrated into the cosmos. When considering forces of a more outer nature, which the soul experiences subconsciously, we are more engaged with sculptural imagination. Between these two there is a remarkable unconscious realm that the soul maintains in its depths. By vibrating between body and brain, the undulation of the nerve, which is actually the cold intellectual part of the human body, comes into contact with the warm blood. In this sort of penetration by warmth and spirit lie the unconscious sources of artistic creativity that animate the painter who then brings his impressions, which he has raised up from the subconscious, onto the canvas. Unconsciously, human beings are in the spiritual world that is revealed only through clairvoyance. It was not for nothing that in the old days the body was considered the temple for the soul. Therein lay the indication of how architecture is related to the condition of balance in the body and in the entire cosmos. Art should express what the artist can implant in his artistic work only because his soul has experienced it in connection with the world 
because his body is a microcosmic reflection of the whole macrocosm. If this is to be brought to consciousness, it can only be done through clairvoyance. Why does ordinary aesthetics, which is built upon the example of natural science, turn out to be so unfruitful? The artist can make nothing of this academic, aesthetic theory, which seeks to bring the unconscious nature of the human being to consciousness in the same way as ordinary scientific research. Clairvoyance makes conscious what lives in artistic creativity. Only the artist should not fear clairvoyance the way so many do. The two realms can live separately, side by side, in the human personality, because they can be so very divorced. It is possible for the soul to live outside the body in the spiritual world. Then it can observe how what otherwise remains subconscious is crystallized in artistic form, but also can observe what the clairvoyant can experience artistically apart from his clairvoyance. Such experience can only fructify art and serve the artist, just as artists can fructify clairvoyance. The clairvoyant who has artistic sense or taste will be spared from developing a spiritual science permeated all too much by Philistinism. He will represent this spiritual world flexibly, will be able to form the how of spiritual science that I mentioned earlier in a more considered way than one who made his way into the spiritual world without artistic sense. It is not necessary to develop fear of clairvoyance as so many artists do. I am talking about serious fear, not just the fear someone might have of being called an anthroposophist. I am speaking of the very prevalent fundamental fear that clairvoyance will impair the immediacy of artistic creativity. In fact, such impairment does not take place. But we live in an age in which, through the historical necessity of human evolution, the soul is pushed to make conscious what used to be present in subconscious naivete. The times we live in can only be understood by someone who transforms what is unconscious evermore into the free grasp of what is conscious. If this need of the times is not met, humanity will step into a cultural dead end. Because art cannot be understood by ordinary science, the aesthetic of the artist is rejected. But clairvoyance develops a science that does not rob art of its essence by attempting to understand it. Clairvoyance is flexible enough to understand art. Therefore, we can understand it as a fact of the present times that a bridge between art and clairvoyance must be built, as Christian Morgenstern beautifully describes, in words that point to the necessity for change. Quote, Whoever wants merely to immerse himself with feeling into what can presently be experienced of the divine spiritual, without seeking to understand it, is like an illiterate person who all his life sleeps with a primer under his pillow. Close quote. One often wants to sleep all one's life with a primer of world knowledge under the pillow in order to avoid weakening through clairvoyant knowledge one's original elementary creativity. Whoever grasps clairvoyant knowledge in the best sense in which it is meant today 
will understand that in the sense of Morgenstern, one must emerge from illiteracy, that one can build bridges between art and clairvoyance, and that new light will thus be shed on art, and through art new warmth will be given to clairvoyance. Thus, as the fruit of appropriate efforts in the beneficent future, through clairvoyant light and artistic warmth, a deeply meaningful impulse can be introduced into future human development. The end of Lecture 8.4